right, well, good morning. <clears throat> it's great to see you guys here uh, this morning. Uh, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Salem. Um, I haven't said this in a while, so I'll say it. If you're, if you're new to Salem, today's your first day, or you've been visiting for a while, if I haven't gotten the chance to meet you, I'd love the opportunity to, uh, to get to know your story uh, a little bit, uh, and mine as well. So um, yeah, we're really, we're really glad and excited that you're here. So uh, this last week, we were, uh, you know, we're kind of coming out of Mother's Day, and uh, you know, this next Sunday, we're uh, going back to Celebration Sunday, and Celebration Sunday is something that we do, you know, two, three, four times a year, where we, we really want to spotlight and, and praise God and celebrate for what He's doing both in and through uh, Salem as a, as a part of that. You know, we do a lunch together afterwards. And so we're excited, you know, for that uh, this next week as we do baptisms and uh, child dedications and all that fun stuff, uh, as well as hear stories. Um, but today we're actually gonna we're gonna finish up our Cave Table Road series. And if you uh, again are new to Salem, and if you don't know this language, you know this is something that for us, uh, you know, kind of represents our our time with Jesus and the, and the Lord. You know, it represents our time with each other, and it and it represents you know the road as the way that we invest and and care for the world and you know with the gospel. Uh, and whatnot. And so, you know, you've heard already this morning about Summer Blast. You've heard about uh, the Inus. You've heard about the Amuris. And, and so, uh, as we dive in to finish Cave Table Rome, what we're going to be really talking about this morning is investing in the next generation. And so, in order to do that, I want to just start with, uh, you know, you heard about Summer Blast and all the excitement that's there. But I want to show you this, this picture. This is from two nights, or two, excuse me, two weeks ago, uh, youth group, just packed house. Um, and uh, this their celebration night. And, you know, what I love is seeing that it's, it's intermingled, it's mixed with students and leaders. And so these are people who all love being together and they're investing in each other for the sake of the gospel. And especially even that whole front row is just a bunch of volunteers who say like, hey, I'm in. Uh, and, you know, for me, as being a youth pastor for 15 years prior, like, this is something that's very dear to my heart, is thinking uh, about how we actually intentionally invest for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom, in, uh, into the next generation. And uh, you may remember, we're going to leave that picture up for a moment, uh, you may remember that um, as a part of dinner theater... Uh, the final item that they uh, that they did a bid on um, was uh, for someone, uh, whoever is you know the winner, um, would get to choose a a jersey that I would wear um, of their own choosing for an entire Sunday morning. And so I'll tell you this, is that this, um, this morning I opened it, I hadn't seen it before, and so as I was opening it, I was, I was really actually pretty nervous, you know, like at least in, at least in part, um, because, you know, as a huge Cubs fan, I thought, well, maybe it's going to be a Cardinals jersey, because um, I really don't like the Cardinals, you know, I mean, Jesus does, I don't. Um, and, and, um, and so as I opened this up, and then I, the next thing I thought was, well, please don't be like, I know there's a, a, like a NASCAR uh, driver who's sponsored by Hellman's Mayo. I was like, please don't be that. Please don't be that. Like, I, I can't stand Mayo. Like, the whole time I'm just going to be like vomiting. And so, and I reach in and I pulled this out. Can I just tell you guys that grace exists in this world? Because what Stacy and Amy Hoiberg chose after paying lots of money was a Chicago Cubs jersey. How great is that? You know? It's so awesome, so great, so nice. Kent came up afterwards, and his first look was a look of disgust. And he goes, that was way too easy. 
that was way too nice, you know, and so I just got to remind him that grace, you know, comes out in everyday actions like this, you know, this is so good. So we're going to be talking about uh, investing in the next generation uh, this morning, um, and uh, you know, we've been in this, this series called Cave Table Road, right? And so as we wrap this up, cave represents that personal space, it's a holy moment, um, it's corporate, it's personal, it's, it's even coming together here as we, as we celebrate, we sing, we pray, you know, um, we, we open God's Word and all those things. And so, right, there's this really holy space. But then we come to the table. And the table is where it gets a little bit messier because what ends up happening is that inevitably the closer you get to somebody, the more you start wrestling with the real issues of life. And so really this is messier because we are now dealing with, with our sin within the community of other people. And there's this tension between wanting to put off of the old and put on the new. And yet there's this account- accountability that happens in the midst of our struggling, right? This struggle well concept as we point each other to Jesus. And so even though that's messier, so it kind of goes from this holy to messy, but then it goes to this really hard, to this road thing where it's really difficult and we start to think about how God has wired us and designed us as a church to actually bring the gospel where we live, where we work, where we study, and where we play, right? With my coworkers, my neighbors, my family, whoever it is, but that we are ambassadors for Jesus. And so when you think about those three things, right, like it's easy for us to kind of pick and choose which ones that we want. We want, I want cave because that's safe and holy. I want table because that's where the community is. And maybe for some of you, are like, man, I love the road. But the reality is, is that if you look at each of these three in balance, if you remove them, we grow imbalanced because every single one of these is meant to make us more like Jesus. Because cave, Jesus had that. Jesus had table, and Jesus had a road. And while road might be the hardest, it's part, the culmination of that. And so when we talk this morning about investing in the next generation, what we're talking about is taking our cave table road rhythms and investing them and injecting them as life into the next generation of people to follow. And so as I think about this this morning, right, Cave Table Road is really, it's not this pithy language that's meant to soothe us. Now, certainly it does that because we can resonate with this. We go, wow, that brings ideas and language to these concepts as we've been processing them, right? And it is soothing. But the reality is, is that Cave Table Road is actually meant to challenge us. Why? Because these are the rhythms of Jesus. Because each of these makes us more like Jesus. And so as we talk about investing this morning, what I want you to hear this is that investing in the next generation is not just one option among many. It's actually out of obedience to Jesus. Because when you look at Jesus' final words to his disciples, in some of those final moments, as he sends them out, he says, go and make disciples, right? And so this is tremendously important. So Cave Table Road is important in and of itself because it's about being shaped in the likeness of Jesus, but then multiplying them and investing in others is that is that next, that next level. So here's the deal. We're going to jump into uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Um, and Paul, the author here, is going to talk about investing at the end. Um, but in order to do that, or part of how this kind of how his, his letter goes, his argument goes here, is he's going to start by talking about this, this Jesus identity. And then he's going to move to talk about um, the influence that exists in the world around us, like all these different voices that are coming from different angles. And then he's going to talk about investing. Okay, so here we go. Chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found 
faithful. I just want to stop and pause here and, and kind of focus on this phrase, like how one should regard us. You see, Paul had a calling as an apostle. He was also the founder and the planter of the Corinthian church, right? And so he basically is stating is that when you know me, like when you see me, right, when I walk into a room, right, when I walk into a room, here's the deal. This is how you ought to regard me, okay? Now, this is not oftentimes the way that this works, right? Identity is very fluid in our culture and how we, how we process people, how we process other people, how we process ourselves. Um, many, many years ago, I don't remember the year, but there was a German philosopher who once wrote, and I used it in the seminary paper a long time ago. He said this, he said that every single time you enter into a room, it's impossible not to compare yourself to other people. Every single time, it's impossible. So when you walked into church this morning, whether it's meeting a greeter, uh, seeing someone in the foyer, someone in here, me, anybody else, or me to you, right? It's impossible for us to not compare ourselves to each other. This is part of how we wrestle with this fundamental depravity that's on inside of each of us as we're seeking to understand who we are and how we fit in this world. And for some of us, right, like the kind of the like the surface level things, it may be it's like you walk into a room and you're like, man, that person is better looking than me. Maybe you, you walk into a room and you're like, that person's so much funnier than I am. They have so much more money than I do. Um, maybe that person, they're just so much happier than I am. Um, you know what? They're smarter than me. They have more degrees than me. Um, maybe it's like, gosh, they appear to not have any struggles whatsoever. And so then on the flip side, what happens then is that we can kind of look and we maybe it's the person, the prideful person that enters into the room and they say the opposite. And they look at people and they go, man, that person is not as good as looking as me said me never, okay? <laughs> never, right? Maybe you, like there's the opposite. You walk into a room and it's like, you know, that person, like they, they, they just tried to crack a joke. Man, that wasn't funny. They're just not as funny as me. You know, or maybe it's like they don't have as much money. You know, maybe they don't have the amount of degrees that I do. They don't have, they're not, not as smart as me, whatever that is, right? And maybe you look at people and it's that pride piece that goes, man, they have so many struggles. I just don't have those, Right? And see, all of a sudden, like, you begin to realize and sense, like, how natural of conversations these actually are. Like, these are natural, everyday conversations that we have within ourselves. And oftentimes, they're conversations that are privileged just to us. Maybe you tell a spouse or a close friend or, or whatnot when you get in this really vulnerable thing, but oftentimes that's just eat deep inside of each of us. And what happens then, especially in our, in our American culture, what can happen is that we're either developing one of two things. We're either going to develop a really high sense of self or we're going to develop a really low sense of self, right? Um, so um, this last summer, I was, uh, I was just sticking with the youth theme here. This last summer, I was uh, with the, the high school students going to challenge uh, down in Kansas City. And so we're driving in the car. We're having these really great conversations. And, and I remember at one point, I, just, I looked around the van and I said, hey, guys, tell me something. Do you think I should grow a beard or no beard? And one person said this. She goes, um, beard, because... Without it, it's just bad. <laughs> what? Thanks for your honesty. Maybe, you know? And so what did I do? 
<laughs> you know, I grew a beard. <laughs> so, so oftentimes what we end up doing, right, is that when we feel like we have low self-esteem, the way to fix the problem is to inject pride or to inject confidence. And so we create a high sense of self-esteem. If somebody is too high of sense, sense of self-esteem, what do we do? We want to lower it and bring it down. Now, from a spiritual lens, though, you look at this, a low sense of self, right? Like, you can walk into a room, and you might go, man, in my life, I am, there's just, I'm full, I'm full of anger. Like, this is a low sense of self. I have so much anger, I have so much sin, I have so much sadness, so much depression, I have so much, um, you know, um, lust, or whatever it is. Like, there's so many different things that we can attribute in here, and it creates this low sense of self. Or... From the other side, we might go, man, I am like just prideful, I am arrogant, I am self-confident in all of those things, I am self-superior in this high sense of self. And so at any given moment, though, then when you walk into a room, your temptation is either to look down on people, to look down on other people, or to look down on yourself. Do you, do you sense this tension? And if you were to trace both of these back to the center, remember what we talked about a couple weeks ago, right? As at the center of that, that identity struggle was this idea of greed, or which is idolatry. It's the fact that we are worshiping something or someone other than the way, than God, the way that we are designed. And so what we end up doing is having a low view of God, a low view of Jesus, which then forces us to have a high view of self or a low view of self. And we try to fix things from that perspective. And all of a sudden, you go like, man, if this is an everyday normal conversation that I'm having with myself, can we just admit that that conversation is exhausting? Like over and over and over and over, we're either not good enough for other people or we're not good enough for ourselves. And it's the sense of identity that's at the core of that, right? And what Paul is going to do, though, is that he's going to invite us into a whole new conversation that in American Christianity we oftentimes miss. Because our culture is consumed with these two things. And what Paul's going to say, guys, it has nothing to do with this. It has nothing to do with this. It has to do with something else. So here's what Paul's going to do. He's going to say this. He's going to say, here, at the end of the day, I don't care what the Corinthians, what you Corinthians think about me. If you're going to judge me, you can judge me, but I don't care what you think about me. But then he goes on. He says, but here's the deal. I don't even care what I myself think about me. I don't even care what you think, and I don't care what I myself think about me. Why? And you go, how is that possible? Look at verse 3. Here's what he says. He says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. You see, Paul is at a distance from the, court, from, from the Corinthian church, and what it appears is that the Corinthian church is actually judging. They're placing judgments on Paul, and he's, he's going to say, I don't care if you judge me, and he goes on. He says, I don't even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is, not the, it is the Lord who judges me, right? It is the Lord who judges me. Do you see this, right? And so what Paul is kind of doing, right, if we were to summarize some of this, is that Paul, like, when, when you and I think of high self-esteem, low self-esteem, we want to fit into a crowd. Gosh, life would be so easy if we just lived perfectly, didn't it? 
It'd be just so great. It'd be so good, right? If you were never at fault, this would be a non-issue. What Paul is saying is that here's the deal. I know that in my interactions with you, there's the possibility that I am at fault for something in our relationship. But what Paul goes on to say, he goes, but consciously, I'm not aware of anything. To my understanding, to my knowledge, my slate is clean with you. But even if that's the case, even if I did nothing wrong, that's not what vindicates me. That's not what justifies me. What justifies me is Jesus. It's the Lord who judges me. And so you pause this core foundational thing. It's says not about my performance. It's not about what I do right, what I do wrong. It's about everything that Jesus did on behalf of me. And that verdict is in Jesus' hands. So every single time you walk into a room and you begin to compare yourself to other people, what Jesus is doing is that he's standing at the side of the room and he's like, man, why, why are you here? Why are you in the courtroom? Why are you placing yourself volitionally and willfully back in this space that you would allow other people to define who you are? Because I had this verdict a long time ago. It was permanent. It was eternal. Here's what I said about you. And that lasts forever. And Jesus, right, his verdict is what matters most. Right? And so what we learn is that every single time we walk into a room, we, we, we're threatened in some sense by the fact that it might feel like we're in a courtroom. And that's, that's dangerous when you are dealing with high self-esteem or low self-esteem. What Paul is doing is he's inviting us into a totally different other way to see this, right? Because if you have a low view of Jesus, meaning that Jesus, like you might believe on paper, and say, I believe that Jesus paid for my sins eternally. But in real life and in practicality, if that's not the way that you live your life, that decreases and lowers our sense of Jesus. And if we have a low sense of Jesus and everything that he accomplished for us, it breeds high self-esteem or low self-esteem, right? And what Paul is actually doing is he's setting himself up over here. He goes, okay, so if this is the Corinthians. He's going to put myself over here. And what Paul is going to do is that here's my sense of identity. I am full. It's not high self-esteem. It's not low self-esteem. It's neither of those things. What it is, it's all about Jesus. It's a high view of Jesus. Here's who he is. Here's what he accomplished for me. And so every time that he would walk into a room and sense that tension, he goes, nope, Jesus' verdict is in. And who I am is who Jesus says that I am. That is my identity, right? And all of a sudden, you begin to see and go, man, this is like, this is gospel humility right here. You know, Tim Keller, um, just a wonderful godly man, um, you know, huge impact in the evangelical world, um, died this weekend after a battle of cancer. He wrote a book that was life-changing for me in many ways. It's called The Art of Self-Forgetfulness, and this is what he's talking about, is he talks about this idea that when you and I are in this tension, right, what tends to rise to the top is the self. And what Paul is saying is that it's not about you. Forget about you. Keep forgetting about you. Think more of Jesus. Right? Think more of Jesus. Because then when all of a sudden, when that happens, you, know, you take some, there's so much more freedom in this. Because when you go to work, it's not about you. 
And it's not about how you perform, right? It's about Jesus. When you, in your marriage, you go, man, it's not about me even in my marriage. It's about Jesus. And about school and studying and all of these things, we go, man, like all of a sudden, like it frees us up to not have to worry about what other people think of us or what we think of ourselves. And if you and I are honest, we would look at this and probably say, wow, that sounds amazing. That sounds so good. Like at the end of the day, we long to experience that kind of freedom in the world that we live in, that we long not to care and to care, to care about what doesn't matter and to care about what matters most. But I think that what makes that voice so hard to be heard is that there's so many voices in our world. And there were, more, there were a lot of voices even in Paul's world. And so Paul shifts from this gospel identity actually to the idea of this, this influence that's coming in around the people. There's so many voices. Look at these voices. Look at verse, uh, verse 6. He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another, okay? So we're gonna, he's going to talk a little bit more about these, these other voices, but what we're seeing is that there are some voices that are speaking into this, and what's creating is this puffing up, right? Now, if we were to go back over here, okay, this is, this is what's kind of fun about this, right? Okay, the word puffed up in, in, in the original language uh, means this. It means to, like, to be bloated or overextended, okay, right, disproportionate. So it's kind of like if you were to take a balloon and, and blow it up way past the way that it's designed to be blown up, okay, right? And so what, what he's talking about is this ego, this ego, this puffing up, this balloon that's being blown up is their big giant head and their teeny tiny little body, right, okay? And so what happens is that, like, look at this, like, you see the contrast here, right? Gospel humility, empty ego, right? And what Tim Keller talks about, and I love this, is that when you imagine, when you imagine like an intestine or something that is bloated beyond the way that it's designed, some things are going to happen. One is this, is that it's going to realize that it's empty, right? Which, which, by the way, remember, if at the center of this is greed, then you're constantly being motivated by the one thing that says that you'll never have enough. And so it's always going to feel empty, but more than that, you're constantly hungry, and the fact that it's twice, three times, four times, whatever this head is compared to that body, that much bigger, it's going to hurt because that's not the way that it's designed. And so what we do when we feel that hunger and busyness and hurt, we feel like the best way to bring like health and healing is to be busy filling it up. And we fill and we fill and we fill and we fill up inside, you know, of our human ego. And when you begin to contrast that with that gospel humility, you go, there's such a stark and dark contrast here, right? You see, what Paul says is that, you even go back into chapter 3, and he says that part of what's happening here is that there's this, these kind of these fa- fractions or factions in the church, and some people are for Paul, and some people are for Apollos. And so it's like Paul, you know, he's out there, and they're like, you know what? Hey, Paul, he planted the church. We think he's the guy. We're following Paul. And other people are like, are you kidding me, Paul? He's terrible in person. He's only a good writer. We're going to follow Apollos, right? 
And so these, these two groups, right? And we don't know why exactly, but you look in today's world, an online world where you can go watch or listen to any church everywhere. There's style preferences. There's length of sermons, too long, too short, too stories, like all sorts of things all over the place, right? And that's like in the church. And really the question that they're being asked or that they're asking is this, is who is my authority? Who is my authority? And that's all the spiritual. But the reality is, is that there's a lot of unspiritual ways that we do this in life too. You know, when I was growing up, by the way, I'm a little collector. I love knick-knack things. My wife probably hates it. Actually, I'm almost positive she does. Um, but I love little knick-knacky things. And this is like a little, uh, it's called a Funko Pop of Michael Jordan. Because when I was growing up, uh, in, you know, in elementary and middle school, like Michael Jordan was the, was the guy. You know, the, uh, the Bulls had won, um, you know, back-to-back-to-back, three-peat championships twice. He's got more rings than anybody else. And you know what, Michael Jordan, like, he was just so fun to watch. And the way that he, you know, really terrorized other teams, like, offensively and defensively. And so for us, people my age growing up who loved basketball, like, I watched Michael Jordan all the time. In fact, I loved it. I, I, I saved up as much money as I could because we didn't have a lot. And I bought my first pair of Michael Jordans. And then I got a shirt and some pants, right? But that wasn't enough. One day, I remember I was out um, in the driveway practicing um, baskets, you know, just shooting hoops. And my dad came out and he's like, what are you doing? I was like, what do you mean? I'm practicing. He goes, no, your tongue is out. (laughs) Michael Jordan was known in, in, in moments of intensity, like shooting or whatever, or driving the ball, he'd do that, you know? And so here's me shooting hoops with my tongue out. And I'm like, man, I had no idea. Like what I didn't realize was that the amount of influence that Michael Jordan had on me was coming out in ways that I didn't even know. It was so, so interesting, right? Like I was mimicking and imitating Michael Jordan, minus the fact that my shots never went in. <laughs> you know, like, so there's this thing, like so you think about the influence in life And Michael Jordan wasn't a friend of mine. He didn't call me and say, Seth, I want you to follow me. He didn't do that. It was all about influence. I just saw him through TV. And that was the influence he had on me. But now think about this. You move 25 years into the future, and here we are, and some people's full-time job is to be a social media influencer. They film videos about all sorts of things, and they just try to influence people. And the more likes and the more followers that they have, the more money that they make right? And some of those voices are straight trash. And some of those voices actually can be really good. But here's what I do know is that you and I live in a world of influence where people are drawn to other people who have a strong sense of identity. But here's what's so different about what Paul talks about and what social media influence talks about. Because social media influencers would say this, I don't care what you think great, good job, that's good. That, that develops your strong sense of identity. But here's the deal, I care only what I myself think. Do you see how that's different? You see, Paul is like, I don't care what you think, but I also don't care what I think, because it's not about me, it's about Jesus. It's so incredibly important. And you see, Paul's ego is not puffed up, it's filled up with Jesus. And this is where he goes on. He creates this contract starting over in verse 8. And I have to warn you, some of these verses are a little hard. 
okay? Because it kind of resonates, not just with the Corinthians, but it resonates, I think, also with us in our time. Okay, look at this in verse 8. Well, he's going to start, by the way, he's going to use a bunch of rhetoric, and he's going to use a lot of sarcasm, okay? So be prepared for that. Verse 8, already you have what all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might rule with you. You see, what Paul's saying is that they're living in a way that heaven has already come. Heaven is already here. And, and Paul's like, I wish that were true. But reality check, it's not. We're still living on earth in the brokenness of the world. And when we're not present, the lifestyle that you're living is not the lifestyle of Jesus, it's the life of a king. He goes on, he says this, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. And so it's like Paul, who's living hard, he's following Jesus with all of his heart, and here's these people in Corinth who are living it up, and it's like they're watching Paul like a movie. It's a spectacle to behold. Here's where he uses his sarcasm. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. And so here's where he, he, he cuts straight to the chase now. He abandons his sarcasm, and he goes right to straight talk. And he says, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. You see, sometimes I read this, and I don't know about you, and maybe it's just me, but I wonder if it is a we thing, that when we read this, we see a glimpse of American Christianity that there is a gap between the way that we live as kings versus the way that Jesus lived. And that's heart-wrenching for me. And I think that's probably heart-wrenching for each of us. And this is where we remember that Cave Table Road isn't pithy in language that's meant to soothe us. It's meant to challenge us because they are the rhythms of Jesus, whether it was first century or 21st century. They are the rhythms of Jesus. And for you and I, like we so desperately want to identify with Paul because the Sunday school answer here is that to identify with Paul is to identify with Jesus. And we long for that, but in reality, I wonder if we are much more like the Corinthians than we want to admit. And that's hard. And that's hard. And so what does Paul do? How does he end this? How does he talk about a solution? He talks about investment. He says, here's the deal. I want you to think about how you are invested in. Look at verse 14. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed but to admonish you as my beloved children. You see, Paul, in this moment, I think he knows that, that in probably in many ways, the proper response for the Corinthians is actually shame. You know, but Paul's not concerned about that. Why? Because that would be, he's not trying to turn them on themselves and to go down to this low view, right? It's not what he's promoting. He's not trying to flip it on themselves, right? That's not at all the case, right? What he's saying is that I want to admonish you. It's another way to talk about exhortation. It's to say, I want to place this in your mind with the encouragement that there is something more. 
There is a life that is more for you, a Jesus life that is not living like kings. There's something more in exhortation. Now, he calls them children, which is interesting because I don't know about you, but as adults, probably one of the hardest things that we might do is to be an adult and treated like a child. That's hard. And yet, what Paul is, is reminding, you go right back, and it's like, but remember, when we're not present, when you're not following the example in us, guess what? You're living like kings. And that's a gap. And so when your life has that big of a gap between you as Corinthians living like kings and Jesus and the way that he lived, that's when he goes, I'm going to treat you like children. And that's hard. That's really, really hard. And he goes on and he says... He says that you have countless guides, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel, okay? So here's the deal. So we come back over here, right? So you got Paul who's over here, right? He says, I'm the father. You've got the church over here. There's this bloated sense, you know, um, this high ego. And he talks about all these countless guides, right? And so a guide in that context was someone who was given the authority to kind of help manage um, the household, right? And so what he's doing is he's talking about all these different guides that they have. But the reality is, is he says countless, right? So it's this big number, right? All of a sudden, we begin to think about all the different layers of influence, these voices, these guides that we have in Christ, right? And what Paul is saying is that, guys, these are good people, but the reality is, is that they're not the Father. The Father is the one who, when he returns home, he corrects the behavior of the children, right? And so when you begin to think about how lopsided this is, and you think about the world that we live in and the number of voices that we are listening to in terms of influence, you have all of these guys, these guides. And yet when Paul comes home, he says, here's the deal, when I return, because I planted the church, here's this, this, there's this call in his heart in verse 16. This is so great. He says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Be imitators of me. Would you just stop and pause and think about the boldness and the authority behind that statement? Because think about the number of different ways that people could respond to Paul. One might be this. You know what, Paul, you're a really good writer, but in person you're just meh. So you really want me to imitate you? Or maybe another person might say, really, Paul, you want me to imitate you? You're the guy who condoned the, Steve, the, the stoning of Stephen, right? In fact, you're the guy, you want me to imitate you? You're the guy who declares that I am the chief of all sinners and I should follow you? You're the guy who says, I do the very things I don't want to do and the don't, things I don't want to do are the things that I do. You think, you, know, you want me to, are you sure? Like, Paul, this seems awfully arrogant. And see, what I think what Paul is doing is he's going back to that identity. He says it's not about Paul. It's not about an individual. What he's talking about is this, is that authority comes from a Jesus-centered identity and life. That's where authority is. It's when what we believe and what we act and live about is Jesus, when those two things are in alignment, that's what Paul says, I have the authority. Because I'm doing it. I get it. 
This is who Jesus has made us to be. This is the example that I want you to follow. And the guides, guys, they don't have the full picture. Why? Because they're living like kings. If the guides had the full picture, then the Corinthians wouldn't be living like kings. You see, Paul wrote 13 of our New Testament letters. And so sometimes I think when we read Paul, especially Romans, like Romans is the longest exposition of the gospel, and it is beautiful. And we read Paul, we're like, Jesus, Paul, right? And we're like, this Paul, man, like he understood God's word. He, under, he can unpack things in crazy, incredible way. He can go to such great depths. And yet I would say this, guys, is that in all of his content, in all of Paul's writing, never was Paul content to simply change one person's thinking. Right knowledge is super important because right behavior flows from right knowledge. But it's always about changing your life. You see, I think that the hardest part about Christianity is not believing the right thing or studying and understanding the Bible. I think that the hardest thing, the hardest part about Christianity is seeing our lives come into alignment with Jesus. That's the hardest part. And so this is where Paul lays it out. He says, this is the deal. The way to correct this is through investment. Here's what he goes on. Verse 17, check this out. He says, that is why. So right on the heels of saying, imitate me. How can we imitate you, Paul? You're a long ways away. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. You see, as we come back to this then, here's what happens. Is you've got the Corinthians and you've got Paul. Who does Paul send? Paul sends Timothy. How does he label Timothy? A child. These people are childs, you know, children too, but this is a child who is faithful. He's the one who's getting it right now. So Paul says, I'm sending you Timothy that he would remind you of, guess what? My way of life in who? Jesus. There he is. You see, you've got Paul, you've got Timothy, and you've got the Corinthians, but it always comes back to who? Jesus. Cave, table, road. Always comes back to Jesus. You know, as I was thinking about how we end this series, and I was thinking about, you know, cave, table, road, right? This is so important. Again, cave, table, road is important on its own. Because if I miss those in my life, my growth in Jesus becomes unbalanced. But the next step of that is to take Cave Table Road and to invest that into the next generation. So when I think about Cave, I go, gosh, I wonder if we're talking about like Christ identity. And when we get to the table, are we talking about Christ community? And when we get to the road, are we talking about Christ lifestyle? Because again, at the end of Jesus' life, what does he say? He says, go and make disciples. And so really, disciple-making, or this idea of investing in the next generation, is more than just the success for the future of Salem. It's really designed for the future success of the kingdom across the world for generations to come. Because again, if you were to go back to this, which by the way, and I forgot to do this, what Paul says, by the way, if this is me, he says, here's the deal. This is in accordance with Everything that I teach at every other church. And all of a sudden, what we see is Paul's vision for the future is that there's all of these churches who are wrestling with the same thing. It's the person 
and the works and the life of Jesus being transmitted from generation to generation, not in a way that makes us live like kings, but that lives with humility and sacrifice. You see, Cave Table Road is not meant to be this pithy language. It's challenging because of the rhythms of Jesus. And so when we think about the next generation, when I think about kids, I think about youth, I think about college students, I think about young adults, I think about anybody who's in those younger categories, I'm reminded of this, is that it's not just an option among many. This is about obedience to the life of Jesus and to the mission and to the purpose of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we wrap up this morning, as we finish, Lord, I'm reminded of something that uh, a student said several weeks ago. During Youth Sunday, as, as a young gal named Zoe came to the front and with a lot of humility, but with a lot of boldness, she said these words. In thinking about Cave Table Road, in reference to Cave Table Road, as she identified herself and along, among all the other young people who were on the stage, and as she looked out into the audience to the older generations, she said this. She said, we are the next generation. Don't let us down. And so God, I pray that you would be stirring in us, in all of us, a craving for this. Because here's what I know, the young people of the world crave Cave Table Road being invested in them. And so Lord, would you stir in us that you would take us back to the cave, that you would build in us a freedom around the identity of Jesus, that in any given moment, as we walk into any given room, despite the fact that the world would say, be confident or be really low, that we would walk into a world and say, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. It's about what he says is true about me. Would you grant us that freedom that we may then fuel our cave table road rhythms and may we intentionally invest in the next generation. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus who makes this possible. We finish by worshiping you and the purpose you've given. In your name we pray, amen.